So I guess I'd say don't hold back. And then also I'd say you don't need a mentor's permission to use them as a mentor. You don't have to actually engage with that person. Powers of observation, you know, imitation. Take from other people. Whatever you see that they're doing that you value, that you think is good, that you think, you know, I wish I could do that, try it. You know, watch how they do it. And I always felt like I had a million mentors, even though I just had a few, I mean, really wonderful mentors. But at a certain point, it's kind of, you don't ask for mentors anymore. But even though I was a leader, I didn't stop looking for mentorship and trying to imitate those positive things. And then also try not to let your, you know, we all have this blindness to some of our weaknesses and we don't, we don't see that and just keep looking for them and ask people that you trust. Am I still doing that? Have I conquered that yet? And I think that sort of understanding yourself and being aware of yourself, I think those are real important things. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's talk to my guest, Elena Melcher. How are you? Fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for coming on. Elena is a former director of Upstream Oil and Gas Research Division at the United States Department of Energy, president of Energia Consulting, and one of our newest members of the team here at OGGN. She is now the host of Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about your show? Sure, sure. I'm real excited about it. I'm taking over for Justin Gauthier, he was the oil and gas onshore podcast host. And so I was thinking about that and I thought, well, I love onshore and offshore. So upstream was a better fit for what I did before and the people that I know and the people I'd love to have come on the show and interview. So that made sense to me. I really loved hearing people talk about what they do day to day, how they do it, how it fits into the overall construct of what we call upstream. And people just don't get insights to what all the different parts are. We call it upstream and we think we know what it means and we mostly know what it means. However, there's a lot of different aspects to it and it has to come all together and nobody knows everything. So this is a way to get inside a little bit closer inside to what people actually do in the various aspects of upstream. Yeah, spot on. I mean, so many different levels of all kinds of different things. And just like you said, we don't know everything. Super excited for you. Welcome to the team. Thank you. But Elena, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Oh my gosh. Well, it was definitely roundabout. My undergraduate degree is in soil science. I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and soil science is about soil. It's not dirt, it's soil. (laughs) (laughs) Everything sits on soil. Soil is a medium for plant growth and it has chemical, physical, and biological properties. And so that's what makes it soil and there's something to study. I guess another way to put this is how did I get into STEM? How did I get into science? We can talk about that. But basically to Cal Poly and I met my future husband there. He was my physics lab partner. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And he's such a sweetie. So he graduated 
a year before I did. So he got a job in Bakersfield, California. And so you know where the story goes. When we got married, I moved to Bakersfield and I had two choices, two career options. One was in agriculture, obviously, because of the soil. Yeah. But also it turned out to be oil and gas. Getty Mining Company, which is part of the Getty Oil Company, which a lot of people don't know that company anymore, but that's another story. Anyway, the Getty Mining Company was doing a pilot project just outside of Bakersfield where they were extracting oil from a surface deposit of diatomaceous earth. And diatomaceous earth is kitty litter. It's really, really porous. It can hold a lot of fluid. Uh So that's what it was doing on the surface. And it just looked like soil. It just looked like pale soil, actually. In California, the soils are real pale. They're real beige. I live here in Virginia, and the soils are red. In places where there's a lot of agriculture, the uh, soils tend to be black. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm super intrigued now. (laughs) I told you I was a little bit (laughs) on the nerdy side, but that's okay. I love nerds, so this is perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved to Bakersfield, got a job with the Getty Mining Company in the laboratory as a laboratory analyst. I have a minor in chemistry and started working, you know, with Getty Mining Company. Then I had the opportunity to go to work for the Getty Oil Company, and I began as an engineering technician, learning the oil business, helping in operations, oil and gas, or I should say heavy oil, steam cyclic injection. Uh Um, The oil was really heavy, it was almost would not float. And they used to inject steam into the pipeline and down into the wells, let it soak for a little while, and then that would lower the viscosity enough for it to actually flow and come up to the surface. Oh, wow. So it was this balance of how much energy do you use to inject the steam to bring it out and how much energy you get out. So it was two barrels of steam would bring you three barrels of oil. So it worked. So I was part of a team that managed a thousand wells in McKittrick, California, and uh, which is, like I said, outside of Bakersfield. So anyway, I started working on a master's degree and my supervisor said, if you're going to go back to school, you might as well become a petroleum engineer and we'll pay for it. And it was an offer I couldn't refuse. So Yeti Oil paid for me to become a petroleum engineer, University of Southern California, master in petroleum engineering. And then before I finished, Texaco bought out Getty and they continued the program. But shortly after that, the Department of Energy, which owned a giant oil field in Bakersfield, California, in Taft, actually. Yeah, Taft County. Kern County. L. Kills, Denver Petroleum Reserve, they were looking for a production engineer. And I just had a few classes left. And so they were willing to hire me at the lowest level of production engineer, but still to production engineer because I had so much experience in operations by then. And then they finished, you know, they paid for the rest of the coursework. And so I moved over to the Department of Energy. I was a production engineer for about a year. And then I moved into reservoir. And reservoir is the fun part for me, the reservoir engineering. You're going from managing one well or a few wells, you know, I mean, you diagnose the challenges of a particular well, one well at a time. But as a reservoir engineer, you're looking at the whole field. You're looking at the whole pool, if you will. I have to be careful of my words. I forget who I'm talking to. When I'm talking to people who are not oil and gas and I say pool, they really think it's a pool. (laughs) (laughs) Oil sort of sitting in this void and, oh, my God, if you pull it out, it's going to sink. So anyway, and so you're dealing with the whole reservoir and that's the exciting thing. And then working for the government. As a young engineer, you get lots of opportunities really quickly. So that's what led me to come to Washington, D.C., and we've been here ever since. So you went from reservoir engineer, basically. How did you determine, I want to go work for the government? Oh, so Getty Oil Company and then Texaco. Uh So the Department of Energy had an opening for a production engineer, and I applied. And so I went to work for the government 
at Elk Hills. The Department of Energy owned 80% of Elk Hills and Chevron owned the other 20%. And it was a commercially operating oil field. So I had production quotas and everything. So I worked for the Department of Energy as a production engineer with production quotas and commercial operations. So that's when I joined the Department of Energy. And that was the government. Yeah, for like 30 yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I guess it was a good gig, huh? It was a good gig. It was a good gig. So let's see, how did that work? The Department of Energy had initiated a program called the Women's Energy Leadership Program. It was actually an Office of Personnel Management program for trying to get more women into leadership positions in the government. And so let's see how that worked. Department of Energy was one of many agencies that nominated individuals, women, to be part of this leadership program. And so I was nominated by the director for Elk Hills. And then I went to Washington for a year's leadership training. And then when I was there, I got an offer I couldn't refuse, actually to be the program manager for Elk Hills and Teapot Dome in Wyoming. So it was kind of fun to be on the other side of that. I'd send my reports to headquarters and here I was a headquarters person, like reading reports, you know, those kinds of things. I got an offer to, I couldn't refuse at the end of the leadership program. And I went to work for the Naval Petroleum Reserve, the directorate of the Naval Petroleum Reserve at Washington, D.C. at the Department of Energy. And then from there, I had the opportunity to work in the research program. So I just basically moved to another hall and, you know, was involved with a different group. And I was a project manager then. We had a lot of research projects. And I was the government representative for managing the project. The Department of Energy invests a lot of money in public-private partnerships with industry, where the government will issue a solicitation and say, we're entertaining research proposals for people to try to increase ultimate recovery from this kind of a reservoir or whatever. And it was that kind of a program in 2008 where the Department of Energy was one of the biggest sponsors of research in uh, unconventional oil and gas. But in the 80s and uh, early 90s, the government was also one of the biggest investors in hydraulic fracturing and in horizontal drilling. When the industry put it together in 2007, 2005, put it together to unlock the potential of unconventional resources, that's what gave the U.S. its energy independence and broke OPEC, basically. I hope I can say that. (laughs) You can say whatever you want. (laughs) It's not going to bother me. I'm over here with my jaw dropped going, wow, this is... (laughs) So so it was really exciting because I worked with a lot of people in industry. I worked a lot of people in the national laboratories, 17 national laboratories that have capabilities that can unlock some of the secrets of the subsurface. So some of the teams that I was on with the Department of Energy or representing the Department of Energy had to do with oil and gas, obviously, and then also geothermal Uh and then also carbon storage, I should say. Okay. So it was fun and exciting (laughs) to work (laughs) at headquarters. Who knew? Except people don't really understand or don't get to see that the department was one of the early investors, you know, in the, in the scary part, their early technology readiness levels when it's just a concept or a new idea or a prototype or taking it up into a field trial or even or at a small scale. And then the next technology readiness levels go up to pilot project, large scale, full scale, and then up to demonstration for purposes of commercialization. It's like a nine level scale. And it's just a way of monitoring the progress of a research idea from concept, a napkin, you know, an idea you draw on a napkin all the way to 
people starting small businesses based on that or large businesses even as well. So people don't, don't realize the contribution that the Department of Energy researchers make, both people at the national laboratories and then also in partnerships with the private sector. I mean, you name any company, any large company that is currently in business here in the United States and other countries as well, I should say. And we've been a partner with them. I should say the Department of Energy has been a partner with them at some point or other, developing the technologies that we use now, because it takes a lot of brilliance. It takes a lot of minds. It takes a lot of people working together. And the government would always and still does gives away the intellectual property so that someone can run with it and someone can turn it into a new technology that obviates the old technologies making things a little more efficient, making things cost less and a little more environmentally benign. These are the benefits of public-private partnerships and why the government should be investing in oil and gas and energy, but oil and gas exploration production technology. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actionable intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Eneverest is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Eneverest has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at eneverest.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. Yeah, that blows my mind. I had no idea. I know. People don't know. People don't know. So with the current administration, do you still think that's happening? They seem to like to shut down most of I feel like they want to take away our independence. I'm sorry. That's kind of a controversial question. but So I served seven presidents, right? My first yeah. president was Reagan. And so then the last president I served was Biden. And it was very hard for me to see after being, you know, in the oil business forever and having worked internationally as well and just been part of so many initiatives and so many challenges. It was hard for me to see how the policies that were being put forth were ever going to help you and me, help Americans, help our lifestyle. And people who suffer energy poverty, I don't know how they would ever be helped by some of these policies. So don't get me started, Paige. (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to take that offline (laughs) let's take it offline but when I was in school the uh, oil embargo of 1973 that was kind of the first geopolitical expression that I was aware of with respect to energy and energy security and energy independence and that whole thing now with oil prices I should say gasoline prices they've come down a little bit but gasoline price is so high, it's kind of, you really have to understand supply and demand. And so, Yeah. How much are they in Virginia? How much is gas per gallon? Oh, it's in the high $4. It's oh. not five, but, it's, but I still go into Washington every once in a while. And I was there over the summer and the gas station that was at Capitol Hill, the gas station was over $6 a gallon. <gasps> six at a wow. six. And so my numbers afterwards, and I said, oh my gosh. I mean, that's the reality when you start messing with supply and demand, right? Let the market yeah. work. You got me started. Let's talk about <laughs> something else. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about <laughs> on my show. I'm going to be bringing in people who are involved in both how they do business now, right? How we yeah. get the oil and gas that we need, because I want this to be sort of educational for everybody, right? Deep dive as well as just kind of understanding the fundamentals, but also some of the people who are doing research now and what's on the pike, you know, what's coming up, people might get excited about. One of the new areas, obviously, is the big data, the data analytics and moving into artificial intelligence. 
yeah. having wells drilled themselves and things oh, like that. Oh, that's so cool. Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. Yeah. It would benefit HSNE. Yes. Less people could be hurt because the people aren't actually there on site. Right, right. And since we can't see what we do, we always have to take measurements and calculate and infer. And machines can only move by actual information or using lots and lots and lots and lots of data. So yeah. they can kind of guess what is the next thing. So to be more precise, you know, it would be a smaller And, and you hope that data is scrubbed and correct. and Yeah, that would that be stuff. all of the work. Yeah, that's where the research is, right? <laughs> right. That's where the research is. So Right. Let's talk about what you currently do in your consulting business. So in my consulting business, I help people shape their proposals for research. So right now, the Department of Energy has $1.1 trillion for research related to energy transition. And some of that funding is for carbon storage, and some of it is for geothermal. And Mm -hmm. these are subsurface arenas. I've not run into any for oil and gas, although I am seeing some for produced water, which is upstream topic. So one of the things that was frustrating to me as director of upstream research was I would see great ideas, proposals with really great ideas, but the proposals were not well presented. They didn't have all their I's dotted and T's crossed. When you're working with the federal government, especially with relationship to money, things have to be just absolutely perfect. There's just too much competition for anybody to have, you know, sort of a little boo-boo. So proposals, the government will put out a solicitation, say we're interested in this kind of research and people submit their research ideas. And the one thing they do really well is make some of these solicitations really, really broad because you don't know where the answer is going to come from. But you say, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Send me some ideas and solutions and things like that. So you get really, really good ideas. And so sometimes these ideas are really good and the proposal isn't very good. So what I wanted to, I said, if I ever get a chance to help people with their proposals, that's what I'm going to do. So that's what my job does. I mean, that's what my company does is look at research proposals before they're submitted and and I give feedback. I basically review it. And the criteria, the review criteria is always inside the solicitation. There's no question. It's just, these are ideas. These are new ideas. These are tough questions. These are tough challenges. And so people just basically run out of time to really both develop the idea in a way that they can talk about a Gantt chart as to when they're going to do what. You know, what's going to happen next. How are they going to spend the money? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very detailed. I mean, there's lots of companies who help people build their proposals. I don't do that. I do review. I look at once you're done, I do a really, really careful review and I give people feedback about might want to improve this. You know, you're not addressing that, those kinds of things. And they basically write their proposal and then I review it. And that's the fun part of what I I just (laughs) like to do. I love that part because then when the idea is selected, you know, I help there. So that's what energy, I'm going to tell you a funny story about the company name is I couldn't figure out a name for my company. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. That part was easy. But how do you name it? You have to name it before you can register it or do anything about it. Right. I couldn't figure out a name. Nothing was like E-M, you know, E-S-M. You know, I couldn't figure out anything. Everything was all taken. And then I said to my husband in a frustrated way, I can't think of a name. And he looks at me and says, does it have to be in English? I said, no. <laughs> So I came out with Energia. I mean, just like that. Energia is Spanish for energy. So Energia Consulting, LLC. Oh, I had no idea. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Energia. Awesome. Awesome. So what are your thoughts on how fast they're trying to force this for the energy 
Transition. Transition, all of that, yeah. So people ask me that all the time. I give them the same answer. I don't think you can get there from here. The word transition means that there's a pace of change. You can have a fast transition, you're going to have a slow transition, but there's some notion of change, incremental change. It does not mean you fall off a cliff. Right. I was like, I almost felt like they're taking prosperity away by forcing that, (laughs) you know. I don't see physically how we can get to all electric life from here. Our grid is old. We're still doing, I don't say we're still doing, but I mean, research on how to increase efficiencies on the grid are, you know, continuing. Not everybody can afford the lifestyle that, that you have, that I have. You know, I mean, there are people who still cook with coal. They still cook with wood. Well, wood is okay because, I mean, that's kind of like grilling. I like that part. You know, that's the only option that they have. Yeah. They have to go get the water. They have to build the fire. Then they get to start cooking. I mean, this is energy poverty. They don't have cell phones. They don't watch TV. They don't look up things on Google. They certainly aren't advancing in their education and engaging in any kind of research and moving their lives forward because they're just basically trying to survive. And energy poverty is very, very real for some people. And so how do you get the whole world there? And the United States could get there, but that still wouldn't keep the temperature down. You know, what is it? One and a half, two degrees centigrade change. It wouldn't happen. And also it's not supposed to happen. You know, the IEA analyses show that in 2050, we still have a lot of oil and gas. I mean, that's still the fuel. Hydrocarbons are still the fuel that the consumption profile is dependent on. So the consumption profile is the same then as it is now. The numbers are different. The portions are the same. So no one said you had to like get rid of oil and gas, right? They didn't say that. They just Yeah, but we're big and bad. Oh, well, we're big and bad, but we're not the only ones. And so we could shut down all of our oil production. It still wouldn't keep the temperature down. So an alternative could be to, you know, pull it out of the air and, you know, stuff it in the ground. Keep it there or create value products from the carbon. Right. Those kinds of things. So, yeah. Well, thank you for your insight on that. I was very curious as to what you thought because I'm of the same opinion. It's just, it's not. All of the above. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable and not all of the above. If you have solar, use it. If you can, right. If you have enough space for wind, it's in your area, you know, use it. Go ahead, use it. But we're not building any more dams for hydropower. We're not drilling. Nuclear power plants are not being built for nuclear energy. Oil and gas wants to go away. I mean, we can't become dependent on another field, right? On right. Solar and wind. We can't just become dependent. I mean, we learned that lesson, I hope. Oh, we definitely learned that last winter. Right. Oh, that's right. In Texas, that's right. And Europe is learning it now. Yes. Yes. I feel so bad for them with the upcoming winter because, you know, I give props to Prime Minister Truss for saying, okay, we're going to unban fracking. And it's a start, but, you know, a lot of people are going to freeze this winter. Oh, yeah. You need some time to develop a program to get the energy. They're not going to be able to accommodate it for this winter. That's true. Yeah. So prayer, I'm praying for Oh yeah, for sure. warm winter for people who live in places where it gets really, really cold. It gets cold here in Virginia. Not that cold. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about leadership. What is leadership to you? I mean, you've been around the government. That's leadership. Yes, yes. And like I said, I served seven presidents. Yes. So I've seen lots of leadership styles. And sometimes even if the president is, you know, reelected for second term, Many of the leadership positions under the president will change. And so you get a whole nother 
style difference and people are constantly moving. So I've had a lot of exposure to leadership styles. And I guess fundamentally the difference between, I mean, some people confuse leadership and management. That's not the same thing. The the manager keeps the trains running on time and the leader decides whether or not we're going to use, you know, rockets, trains, or walk. It's about a vision and a goal and pulling together all the people, which is the very best resource pulling together those resources that are needed to achieve that goal and solving the problems along the way. And it can be very, you know, this is cliche, we can be lonely, but there's very few people that, you know, in a particular leadership context, people who understand all of the different things that have come into play or do come into play in order to make a decision. And so sometimes people are frustrated that decisions, you know, don't get made fast enough, but there's a lot. And ultimately, you are never going to have all the information that you need in order to make a decision of that kind, right? A, a leadership decision. Right. So it's still going to come down to your gut. It's still going to come down to what can you live with and, and what makes the most sense with all the information you do have. That's a hard thing to do. So doing those hard things, I think, is kind of the essence of leadership. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question was, what's hard about being a leader? I mean, so that frustration that an individual might feel with leadership not making decisions, leaders also face. And it's, I think patience is a leadership skill. You have to be patient with yourself, patient with the situation. And I am not a patient person. So that was my greatest challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a patient person. So that's when I realized, yeah, patience is a leadership skill. I forgot what you asked me. What were we talking about? (laughs) Oh yeah. What leadership is to you. So that's what it is, is being able to stand in that gap in places where no one really knows, but somebody's got to choose and somebody's got to do something and someone's got to be willing to lead, to marshal the forces that are needed in order to advance in the direction that makes sense to move. And that's what leadership is, I think. Yeah. So what do you think the easiest part about being a leader is? Well, it depends. If you have really great people, it's easy. (laughs) It's much easier to lead, right? It's much easier to lead. But I guess the hardest part of, you know, one of the toughest things I faced was I always wanted to do everything. I could always see so many problems or so many places I wanted to go or, you know, wanted to take the organization. And you just can never do everything that you want to do. And I guess, you know, that's sort of the hardest thing is once you start getting comfortable with it, you know, you just realize how powerful people are when they're pulling together and working together. Their strengths and their skills are unleashed. And when you have a good team that, you know, just, it's just so much fun. Yeah. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be? Well, let's see, I guess my advice would go to women, young women. Although young women today aren't as, how can I say this, afraid of leadership yeah. as women in my generation. I used to go to SPE meetings, mm-hmm. OTC meetings. I'd be the only woman in the bathroom. That never happens, right? <laughs> never happens at a you know a large event with thousands of people. You're never the only. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of changes over time with respect to the number of women that are getting into the oil and gas industry. And of course, there are so many more women leaders and you've had many on your show. So I guess I'd say don't hold back. And then also I'd say you don't need a mentor's permission to use them as a mentor. You don't have to actually engage with that person. Powers of observation, you know, imitation, take from other people, whatever you see that they're doing that you value, that you think is good, that you think, you know, I wish I could do that, try it, you know, watch how they do it. 
And I always felt like I had a million mentors, even though I just had a few, I mean, really wonderful mentors. But at a certain point, it's kind of, you don't ask for mentors anymore. But even though I was a leader, I didn't stop looking for mentorship and trying to imitate those positive things. And then also try not to let your you know, we all have this blindness to some of our weaknesses and we don't, we don't see that and just keep looking for them and ask people that you trust. Am I still doing that? Have I conquered that yet? And I think that sort of understanding yourself and being aware of yourself, I think those are real important things. Yeah, for sure. You know, they say wise people learn from other people's mistakes. So yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely understand what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. What book influenced you the most and why? Oh, okay. Well, I, I usually read a couple, three, four books at the same time. And of course, the good book is my go-to. And I listen to a lot of podcasts on the spiritual side as well, the religious side. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a conservative. So the Bible is kind of the most influential. But like I said, I read lots of things like the book I'm reading right now, I'm going to look at the title of it, The Berlin Project. Don't laugh. The Berlin Project is sort of a fictionalized story of how we got to the atomic bomb Mm. and kind of the politics that went on in between, could have gone on amongst the different scientists, amongst the military and science, amongst the brilliant people from all over the world who came together to kind of to create that, that capability. And of course, that was where the Department of Energy came from, right? The Atomic Energy Commission was a precursor of the Department of Energy. So oh, I, I spent a lot that. of time there. Oh, yeah, that's what happened. And so the National Nuclear Security Administration is a, an independent agency of the Department of Energy. And that's where the bombs are to keep them separate from the military, which is the Department of Defense. Mm. So that's why the Department of Energy is such a science and technology organization, you know, working with the national laboratories, uh, creating the national laboratories first, and then having national laboratories kind of look at the essence of matter and force and materials. And that's why all of that comes from there. But I'm reading that book because it's kind of really interesting. And my mother-in-law, my father is my husband's mother. My mother-in-law was a nuclear chemist who worked at Oak Ridge, Tennessee just after the war. So she was part of the Department of Energy and I could never get her to talk about you know, what she did at the Department of Energy because, you know, she'd probably have to kill you. Yeah. So she couldn't talk about it, even though it was years and years and years afterwards. She went from Oak Ridge to Cal, UC Berkeley, and worked there for years. And she always said that she synthesized vitamin K. So vitamin K, you know, I guess it's an essential vitamin or whatever. And then when she passed away and we we're cleaning her house and finding her papers and things like that, turns out that she worked at Berkeley and she published. And that's why the only reason we know in these technical journals, she published and these, all these articles were about how to work with and handle samples, radioactive samples. And she worked on the cyclotron at, at Berkeley, which is, I don't want to go into all the science about that, but it's how to purify the radioactive materials that you need for these events. <laughs> wow. But yes, I know. How shocked that. were you when you found that? We just couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. And a lot of her papers are online as well. I mean, you kind of have to dig and dig and dig, but they're like online, right? So, so it's all out there. But so, yeah, that was very exciting to learn that about her. And uh, of course, we, we didn't know. <laughs> and she <Yeah>. wouldn't talk. <laughs> wow. That's the greatest generation there, right? So. Yeah, no kidding. What a gift. A gift. That's right. That's yeah. Right. So what's your most used business tool? A pencil. With a good eraser. <laughs> oh, me too. I have one right here in my hand. 
people laugh at me. I'm like, I love mechanical pencils, really fancy yeah. ones, really pretty ones. You know, they all stay sharp. And then a really good eraser, you know. The, the, yeah, that doesn't mess the paper up. Doesn't or make, just doesn't smear it. Up, nothing, right? I mean, that you can get a good grip on it because I am far more comfortable. I guess it's the perfectionist in me. If I make a mistake, I want to erase it. Yeah. Clean it up. I don't want to cross through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm always making lists and diagrams and, you know, things that I need to work with. And the list is messy. Then I, you know, it's not fun to follow it. Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) crunchy. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I'll, (laughs) I'll get so mad sometimes if I make a complete list and it doesn't look nice. I'll rewrite the whole thing on a new sheet of paper, the whole bit. Well, I don't quite do that. I erase it though. I erase it. Oh, and then I guess the second most used tool would be the whiteout. You know, it's on the little roller kind of little Yeah, those things kind of are quirky because they're not always straight and that drives (laughs) me crazy too (laughs) because I have issues. I'm there with you. I'm there with yeah. You. But the, the old one with the brush was awful. Yeah. And lumpy. Yeah. Yeah. I like the little roller. It's like a little spool and then you just put this, just put it down on top of your writing and you just yeah. draw across and leaves that tape. and Right. Yeah. yeah I but it's hard to write it with a pencil over the tape. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I used it a lot whenever I was doing reports for an operator to turn into Bessie. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, like sensitive reservoir information sheets yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Every now and All right. So I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who is your most respected competitor? Well, let's see. Gosh, you know, my work in such a small niche, if you're a consultant, you do a lot for everybody, right? I mean, there's just yeah. a lot of things. And and actually, I'm in the sweet spot of the trend right now. So many, I'm so popular. People are always calling me. But in terms of competitors, I would have to say all consultants are competitors because I think when it comes to consulting, it's the expertise. I mean, certainly you have to trust the people that you're working with or the people you hire to work for you, you know, a consultant, that the quality of the work is there. There's a lot of smart people, a lot of people doing a lot of good work. But then it comes to the relationship because you don't always know what you need or what your answer is going to be or how, you know, you want somebody who can reflect back to you. So I guess I'm not into the competition part of it. I never (laughs) even thought of it. I put my shingle out and I got a big contract right away and I got a very small number of clients. And because the work I do is just so niche, I don't name my clients and otherwise everybody would know who's competing with them. You know, it's it's just not, yeah, I just don't talk a lot about it. You know, I think my biggest competitor is my husband because he's retired and he just likes to play. (laughs) And the reason I'm working is because of the brain candy. I just miss working with really smart people. I just, there's people everywhere, right? But then there's in the oil and gas sector, people have to know about a lot of different things, right? Yeah. And, And there's specialization, obviously. But in the oil and gas sector, you really have a lot of brilliant people and not all of them went to school either. And I think that that's the most exciting part of it. So that's really what I do is I seek out working with people who I can learn something from. And I just love that learning. So I guess I'm always going to be working, even though I'm retired, I'm always going to be working just because of that brain candy. And there's just nothing like it. And it keeps me young, right? And the smart people are getting younger and younger. So. Yeah. So that's just the exciting part of it for me. So yeah, sorry, that's not a real good answer, but. <laughs> oh, no, I liked it. My dad's that type. He's always got to keep the brain stimulated. Yeah. He's like, I'll take my, I'll retire when I die. Well, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'll keep busy. I'll keep busy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to always be busy. Yeah. 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 Busy body. What do you think is your most important lesson learned? Let's see. I guess there's a couple of lessons learned. One is that I do have something important to offer. It took me a long time to really trust my gut, trust myself. People trusted me before I really felt comfortable. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's a maybe that's a personal secret or a personal thing, but trust and trust comes from relationship. And so, you know, trusting myself, trusting others, you know, I'm still pretty much a control freak, but bringing out the best in people, I think is the way to do that is from the trust. And so I think that's what I've learned. Okay. All right. So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the oil and gas industry? Oh my gosh, because <laughs> because right now we're living and working in a very special time. Yeah. And you know, we really need to have all hands on deck even if you're retired. There's such a prejudice I want to say against oil and gas sector. Um there's a lot of money right now so some young people are going into it, but it's really important that for as long as, you know, we have an energy form that has such energy density and such diversity and capabilities. I mean, even pharmaceuticals come from oil and gas. I mean, right. we really need these hydrocarbons. And so keeping people coming into the industry, I think, is really important. And we're in a transition with respect to those skill sets. Being able to continue to share that, educate people on, you know, the reality of oil and gas, the reality of energy policies and uh, energy security and economic security that's tied to energy and national security, of course. But there's people all around the world. I mean, everybody has the need for energy and has options. Some have more options than others in the United States. We have all options, you know, all of the above, but some people don't. And so having this notion of energy literacy, I think, is really important. And I think that that's part of what I do. I have this small consultancy, but I'm also a big volunteer. I'm advisor on lots of different things. And one of the things that I do is I talk with girls, especially about energy. Yeah. What does it mean when you plug your phone in to charge it? Well, what does charge mean? You know, what what's going on in there? And where does that energy come from? And right. A lot of people don't know that. And <laughs> <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> You're trying to get me started again, aren't you? I can't help it. <laughs> me neither. I can't help it. I can't help it. But that's what I do. Energy yeah. literacy is one of the reasons why what I do is important, I think, uh, important to me and important to the people around me. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So as a new podcast host, what's your favorite podcast? Well, Oil and Gas This Week awesome. used to be my <laughs> used to be my favorite. <laughs> now my favorite's going to be Oil and Gas Upstream. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Oh, and of course, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders. Oh, thank you. <laughs> right? Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, making my face turn red. <laughs> making me blush. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining me and sharing so much interesting things and your story and your journey. People want to reach out to you or and or get to know more about your consulting firm. How can they go about doing so? LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. You're I'm definitely on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll make sure That's the easiest way. I love connecting with people. So many people have so many interesting stories and there's just so much to learn, like I said. So. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly why I love doing this show. There's yeah. so many different perspectives. and yeah. Oh, and I also have a website. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> 
It's energiaconsultingllc.com. Okay. Right? So it's E-N-E-R-G-I-A, Energia Consulting LLC. Oh, and word, you got to get that LLC in there too. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'll make sure yeah. to put a link so Audrey will put that in the show notes for oh, us. Oh, there you go. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Well, so that concludes this episode. Just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.